it's really good to be transparent with kids and families when you see a block. So when you see something's not quite right here or something's not moving like I thought it was going to move or perhaps the tool's not quite developing as the way that I would have anticipated it to, to go to the child and also go to the family and say, hey, we're at a bit of a crossroads. Welcome to the Emerging Minds podcast. Hi everyone, my name is Chris Dolman. This is the second of a two-part episode exploring therapeutic practices for enabling children to actively participate in developing and tailoring interventions that can support them in dealing with the problems they're facing. We explored this theme earlier this year when I met with some practitioners who work with children and their families and I also met with some parents who've accompanied their children in conversations with psychologists and other professionals. In the first episode, we explored a key question. How might practitioners go about sharing their practice wisdom and expertise with children without erasing children's experience or inadvertently disempowering them? In this second episode, we'll be exploring some practice ideas for responding when children and families experience setbacks in dealing with problems, as well as some practice ideas for future-proofing children's newly acquired or developed or discovered skills as they respond to problems. We'll again be hearing from three of uh, these practitioners I've just mentioned, Angela Coppy, Jane Walsh, they're psychologists with Adelaide Paediatrics, and also Sarah McLean, a child psychologist from Emerging Minds. We'll also be hearing from Jess and Emmy, two of Emerging Minds uh, family partners who've contributed to the development of our practice strategies series of e-learning courses, and they'll be sharing from their lived experience of um, working with practitioners who've been consulting with their children around you know, their children's mental health and wellbeing. If you're interested in any of these free e-learning courses or others, yeah, please visit our website at emergingminds.com.au. But for now, you know, I think as practitioners, we recognise that even, you know, despite the most careful preparations and collaboration in tailoring interventions with children, things don't always go according to plan. You know, interventions aren't always as helpful as we would hope. I asked our interviewees about those times when children report that they haven't implemented a a tool or technique that's been discussed and agreed in in practice, in therapy. Or otherwise, you know, when a child might have tried a tool or technique but just hasn't been useful, it hasn't made a difference to the problem. What kind of guides them as they respond to these circumstances? Firstly, here's psychologist Sarah McLean. I think it's important to set up right from the start an expectation that this is a learning journey and learning journeys come with setbacks. They come with failures. They come with the highs and the lows of life. And so the best plans will go wrong. Um, So I think that's an important expectation to set up with children and parents right from the start. Then I think the next most important thing is really being careful not to, I guess, inadvertently lay blame anywhere. As a therapist working with children and families, one of the first things I would do would be to lay the blame on myself or open that up as a possibility. So I might say to children, well, it's quite normal for you know things to go wrong. Sometimes that's because I haven't used the right words to explain it. And sometimes it's because what I've asked you to do is too tricky. Or sometimes what I've asked you to do takes too much time. So I kind of would rephrase it that way because children will tell you straight away and it's actually quite common for me to use too many words to explain things to kids. So it also provides them an opportunity to say, well, yeah, 
I didn't actually agree with what you asked me to do. So I might phrase it as, you know, lots of kids find that I've asked them to do too much or lots of kids find they don't have time or any of those things, you know, what's more true for you or... So I'd sort of explore it that way. And the other thing I think is important in the context of setbacks is that what we've learnt from growth mindsets in children's or in adults for that matter, the capacity to see that failures are learning opportunities. So reframing the conversation is, well, I wonder what we've learnt out of that experience. Maybe we've learnt that I've asked you to do something too tricky right now. Maybe we've learnt that doing this in the morning time is not going to work because things are too busy. So what have we learnt out of this failure? How can that shape what I'm asking you to do next time or what we work out we're going to do next time? Yeah, I really appreciate hearing about Sarah's attention to the power relations of therapy and making sure that the child knows whose responsibility it is that the consultations are helpful. Psychologist Angela Coppy describes her approach. I always explain to them at the very start that I'm not a magician and I can't magic away their problem. And if I could, I'd probably start with my own problems first. But I can give them ideas and we can work together as a team to try and manage some of those problems in a better way. My job is to offer you a whole lot of different ideas and you might find some work and some don't work. And there's going to be no one particular strategy or technique or tool that's going to work 100% of the time in every single different situation. So I always let kids know that I'm going to help provide a toolbox. And so we're going to learn lots of different things. So if this didn't work, why didn't at work? Was it the situation that impacted on its success? Or is there something else that we could have done a little bit differently? Can we tweak that strategy or do we need to try a whole complete new strategy? So predicting what is going to happen, I think is really helpful when I'm setting them up for whatever homework task that you're going to use this strategy of diffusion, for example, but your brain is going to come back to you and it's going to give you that thought again. So you need to repeat the strategy. So it's not going to get rid of that thought completely. You need to keep trying and keep trying. And if it doesn't work, then we can talk about it next time and think about something else that might work better. Jane Walsh talks about the importance of being transparent and understanding how children feel when tools or techniques don't seem to be helpful. It's really good to be transparent with kids and families when you see a block. So when you see something's not quite right here or something's not moving like I thought it was going to move or perhaps the tool's not quite developing as the way that I would have anticipated it to, to go to the child and also go to the family and say, hey, we're at a bit of a crossroads and I want to check in with you. How are you feeling? Do you think that we're at a bit of a crossroads as well? Are you feeling like we're a bit stuck? We're not kind of moving forward? Because that's how I'm feeling. I'm wondering how you're feeling too. And kids and families respond really well to that rather than just keep moving through because also what it helps them to do, because quite often you'll get kids that don't want to tell you that something's not working because they're worried about how you're going to react or respond or, oh, I can't tell Jane that I didn't practice that or I, that didn't work for me. So if you're modelling that too, a bit like, oh, I'm a bit stuck and then it makes it feel okay for them. I wonder if you're feeling a bit down or a bit sad or a bit annoyed that this didn't, this didn't work for you because you tried hard and you practised and we worked on it and, and then you've gone away and you've tried it again and it hasn't worked. And just being able to acknowledge that that must be a bit hard for them um, and seeing where they go with that because they might be like, no, 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 it's cool, it's fine, I'm used to it or, you know, and that's another thing, I'm used to it, what does that mean? Um, but acknowledging where kids are at and that, that they can sense from an adult that 
they get it is really important. Jane's comments also have me thinking about how if we hear from kids that they are feeling a bit flat or discouraged, you know, we can be curious about how come they've still come along uh, to the consultation, you know, despite this encouragement. You know, how come they haven't given up? You know, I think this can help build or regain momentum. Here's Jane again. You just got to try and keep the momentum somehow, keep them engaged, keep them interested, keep them kind of thirsty for what else could this be like? So are you ready to try something new again? You know, just keeping it a bit light and keeping the energy there because the failure stuff can get a bit heavy. I asked Jess from her perspective as a parent about this and she described different metaphors that can help with disappointment and discouragement. I think especially like when you engage that child in that process, you become an explorer or a, you know, detective, you know, you look over it with that fine magnifying glass and you see, oh, maybe, maybe we missed that last time. Or, you know, I've known other kids that I've done this and it worked better. So it's about how can we all get on the same page to have another go rather than focusing on the not doing it. Their focus needs to be about how do we do it better next time. So I asked Angela and Jane, you know, when children return and say that they didn't give the tool a go, they didn't try, how do they respond to that? We have a discussion about why it didn't work. Why didn't you do it? And then try and problem solve some ways to be more successful in the future. So was it that you forgot? Was it that there wasn't enough time? Was there a crisis that happened? And I think a lot of the time with my families, there are competing priorities. And so something does tend to happen within the two weeks that I see them that is always more important than whatever it is that we have been talking about. So it's about trying to find um, out why it wasn't actually done and see if we can troubleshoot that and work out a way to try it again the following week. So I don't ever throw it out. It's let's come back to it and let's try it again this week. My initial response is not to shame them for not doing it. And really the focus is on the fact that they feel comfortable to tell you that they didn't do it. I think that's important that they, you know, that they didn't feel nervous or worried about my reaction to that. Again, in the preparation, it's always important, I think, to talk about to kids and the families about we're going to try different things together. And some of them are going to be, yeah, that was pretty cool. Or some of them are going to, you're going to come back and go, oh, Jane, no, don't make me do that again. So this is you, me, mum and dad all working together. So we're a team and some things are going to work and some things aren't going to work. And the best thing for me is that you can all come to me and say that didn't work because then I'm going to know which way we need to keep moving forward. It's not this way, it's this way. Can we have a think about why? What do you reckon got in the way? Is it that you didn't remember? Is it that you were waiting for mum and dad to remind you? Is it that um, you walked out of here and you just forgot? Like, what do you reckon it was? Um, And see whether or not they can have a conversation with you about that. Maybe it was too tricky. Maybe they went to do it and it was too hard. Okay, all right, so maybe we need to make take like five steps off it and just have a, you know, a tiny, like if there was, if this was one jump, maybe we need to make that jump smaller for them to practice. Jane goes on to talk about the importance of taking a closer look at what didn't work to discover aspects that did. And she highlights the importance of taking care of how we even talk about that. I'm really interested in what parts of it, because quite often it can be that, two parts of it actually were kind of okay. Three parts weren't. And it's also when you break it down, what often happens is the whole thing gets bundled into, oh, that didn't work, that's no good. But when you break it down, oh yeah, actually that part did. All right, well, let's keep doing that part, but let's get rid of this bit and try this as well. 
So, yeah, I'm really mindful that the overall response is often, nah, nah, not helpful. And then when you break it down, it's like, oh, I wonder if this part actually was okay. And sometimes the language is interesting too because instead of saying a couple of parts were, oh, they were helpful, they were really good, it doesn't need to be that strong. The language needs to be a bit lighter in the sense they were okay. Sometimes we go to... Uh, when we're trying new things and families are trying to implement something and children are trying to implement something, they think it has to be great. Oh, that was really, you know, a really good outcome. It doesn't need to be so big sometimes. Sometimes the success is just okay. It was just a little bit different. So it's about helping kids to notice those little things because then when you're using your tools and you're like, oh, so this part, and you're really trying to get them to hone in on specific, like the little things, it's a lot of work for them. They, they're too quick to jump to, that didn't work. You can see that little moment of, ah, yeah. And just the, you know, we might sit up a bit strainer or we might move in our chair, oh yeah. And the, the, the excitement in that, okay. And also with that excitement, and that's where you wanna just grasp onto that excitement and go, and how about we try the next step, three and four, and imagine if we're feeling like this now, what we're gonna feel like if three and four also help us feel different too. But you gotta pick those moments and sometimes they can be, fleeting and if you miss it then it takes a while to come back to it too but there yeah with the help of mum and dad well you know with parents or primary caregivers to be able to be because you're you know an hour a fortnight or an hour a week if you're lucky in their life to be able to help them to notice those little times that do make some changes it's really important as well acknowledging that that was hard to go through that and then have it not work and to still have some energy to keep going you still got some Still got something in there to try something else? What do you reckon? I reckon you do. Jess also shares about what's important from their perspective as a parent, you know, in terms of how a practitioner responds when the child experiences some sort of setback. And maybe the practitioner can acknowledge and say, maybe I didn't think this through enough with you. Where do we need to kind of change that plan? You know, was it the wrong time of the day? Is it the wrong colour? Like whatever it is that's kind of, I guess, made it not happen and go ahead. As the parent, you kind of, if you've got that practitioner making the plan with the child to have another go and to change it, the parent can then feel like they've got some... I guess, direction about how to support it to happen next time, even if it hasn't happened yet. If you've got something that's just not working or there's that block, the practitioner could just practice it with the child in the room as well. Like, let's have a go. Let's role play it. Let's, you know, let's role play it with the parent and get them to act like the kid in the situation. So it kind of brings that fun element back to it of like, why are we doing this and what are we trying to do with it? Let's have a practice where there's no pressure. You know, there's no circumstances that are going to explode into bigger things. Let's have a practice and be a bit silly with it. Then the kid's more likely to engage with that. Again, maybe in those moments where they need it. Yeah, I really appreciate how Jess has described the approach there. The practitioner taking it on board to change things around, to keep it light. A bit like putting fun back into failure. She goes on to talk about noticing small successes. I think it's important to highlight where the success was in that because I think even when there's failure, the tool didn't work or, you know, slipping back into some old habits, there is still something that did work to begin with. So it's about highlighting those and pulling those out to be able to then move forward with success next time. I think that 
every time we have a go at something that we are getting better at it over time, that things take practice and sometimes things are just tricky and sometimes we fail and that's okay too. I think it's really important that they know that there's always another chance to have another go. Um, You know, there's never a failure so big that we can't come back from it. I asked Emmy what she hoped as a parent, you know, the practitioner would explore in response to hearing from a child about a setback. She reflected upon the importance of putting the focus on the context and the circumstances surrounding the child's use of the tool or technique. Well, I think it would be really important to see the practitioner make sure that they didn't put any pressure on the kid. Talking about the context, you know, maybe even an example, you know, like a situation where maybe this solution could have been useful and it wasn't used. Let's explore that context a little bit and maybe exploring that allow for different solutions to come into place because it moves the shift from them being a failure or, you know, um, not doing something right to it being something about, well, it's not about me, it's actually about the circumstances. It shifts that burden of, of Thank you to Emmy and Jess for those insights. Of course, you know, we know that sometimes significant or multiple setbacks can actually have children and families and practitioners feeling kind of stuck in the problem. Sarah McLean talks about pausing to review and notice what has changed and how things might be different from when the conversations first began. Sometimes it's really useful to go back through your case notes and look at Uh, how far the family has come because often it's normal for families to go through periods of being stuck or additional stresses or you're missing something as a therapist or whatever but it's it's normal to have those ebbs and highs and lows in family's life and in the progress but overall you know sometimes it's helpful to say okay right that's actually changed a lot since when I first met that family personally I find that useful so being able to uh, look back to look forward is a really important skill for families to have as well. You know, it may be little gains like a child was only attending school for an hour and now they're staying up until lunchtime. That's awesome, you know, in a six-month period or a year. For some children, that's a massive gain because of all the other things that opens up for them. So, yeah, I think definitely you can use that same kind of looking back and noticing change. Sometimes I've called it optimistic perseverance, you know, sort of you've got to notice the little gains in order to be able to persevere in the longer term. I asked Jane Walsh, what is it that supports her as a practitioner not to be kind of weighed down by discouragement or disappointment when the child and family experience setbacks in dealing with problems? I'm feeling like everyone in here is kind of like, oh gosh, nothing's really working. And it's important to call that out. It's, it's a similar sort of thing, like with that heaviness and the disappointment about, I don't know whether I want to keep going with this or keep trying different things because nothing seems to be working. To acknowledge that and to get that out, is that how everyone's feeling? Because I feel a bit like that. Is that how you're all feeling? And then it's a good moment to pause and reflect and go, okay, so we've had five sessions, one session, two sessions together. Has there been anything that you've kind of gone away and gone, yeah, that sat okay with you or that you've felt um, like I want to try that at home or I'm going to think about that a bit differently or you've noticed your reactions to something are a bit different. So trying to reflect a little bit to see whether there's anything that I have noticed. I think during that process you often find something, again, something little that's been okay, just okay. And that's often enough to talk about that and to build on from that that makes families go, ah, it's not all terrible. It's not all useless, like it's not hasn't been a waste of time. There's been snippets 
Because it's unfortunate, isn't it, how our human brain works, that we often go into this negative box where everything becomes, we catastrophize and then everything becomes, oh, that was all bad. Well, actually, it wasn't all bad. And sometimes it takes that pause and that reflection to go, oh, I remember that. I remember that session when we did that little thing. That was okay or pretty good. Jane's emphasising the importance of noticing progress, even in the context of setbacks or disappointment. Of course, many practitioners know that sometimes, you know, after a period of absence, a problem returns to the child's life. And this also can leave the child or the family feeling like a failure. I asked our interview guests how they go about limiting the chances of a sense of failure happening when problems do return in the future. Jane Walsh spoke about the importance of acknowledging children's experience and preparing for this kind of eventuality. So initial acknowledgement of what's that like, that it's come back. And how's the child feeling about that? Are they upset? Are they annoyed that it's come back? Um, how are you feeling about that? Is there a sense of frustration in the house? You know, sort of acknowledging what's going on for them now in terms of the re-emergence of whatever it is. Again, I'm going to go back to the importance of the prep when you're working with families about things come and go. And it's not that we're ever, we ever fully stamp out or get rid or things disappear. What happens is we get better at managing them. And so each time they do emerge, if they do, that we're better equipped to deal with them. Sometimes they can be slightly different, you know, a different, different tweak on things, but we're still, we've got some new skills or new tools that we didn't have before. You know, I talk about roller coasters, I talk about waves. I like the wave because kids usually have been to the beach, know what waves are, and waves are, can be big and sometimes problems can be big and sometimes problems can be small, but what we know about them is that they always come down. Worries, they always come down. We've just got to learn to ride it. And how do we ride it? We get our boogie board. What's going to be our boogie board? But what, how, I guess it's also good for families to reflect on how's this different this time? The fact that it's come back, okay, is one thing. Is it different at all? Did you think differently about it? Did you manage anything differently about it this time than you did last time? I think it's unhelpful if families go away thinking that this may never come back because that makes the sense of failure so much worse if it comes back and they think, oh, but hold on, this wasn't supposed to happen. Yeah, it kind of can. Like it may not, but it also may. But you've also got so many more tools to be able to manage it. And so I always treat that like an exciting thing. Like, look at this, you've got, you've got some really good tools that you can go and conquer the world with at the moment. Let's get, let, it's your turn to give this a try. So I always then have a period of time where I send them away with their new tools. Sometimes it is a toolkit. We actually make a toolkit. You know, I send them away and then I get them to come back after a period of time. So it could be that it's at the end of the term or it could be at the start of a new year that I get invite them back in. Sometimes that's just enough to go, yeah, I've done this. I'm feeling really good about this and yeah, things. And it's also good for them to celebrate therapy in a positive light too, that therapy is not always when things are really bad, but... It gives them a chance to go, I've gone to try these new skills. Sarah McLean reminds us that the process of collaboratively developing and tailoring interventions with children can in itself help future-proof children's new skills. It may be their first experience. For a child, it may be their first experience of working uh, in a respectful way with adults. Um, it sets them up, I think, for skills to negotiate whatever barriers and obstacles or challenges or opportunities come up for them in the future. So it's kind of very future focused strategy, if you like. So what we're trying to do is not just solve this problem or this issue, whatever this is, 
for the here and now, but also set up a, a way of approaching and problem solving that children can take with them into the future. So we're looking at trying to validate their expertise, their past experience, build a sense of optimism and efficacy, and then, but also give them transportable skills into the future. Always keeping in mind that we are here for a short time in kids' lives, but what we want is for them to have skills that they can take with them wherever they go in life. So let's now hear from parents Jess and Emmy for their ideas about what a practitioner can do to support a child and a family to ensure that the skills and tools and techniques that they've developed can endure into the future. I think it depends on who you're kind of directing that conversation with. If you're having it with the child, figuring out language that works for them. Is it about levelling up, you know, like that gaming language? Is it about levelling up that skill? Is it about what is the next step? Is it about how do we go bigger next time? Um, I think the age of the child's going to change and where they are at developmentally changes and their ability to cope with that change can be really tricky when that tool now doesn't work. So the practitioner could have those conversations of what's the next level for this skill or technique or, yeah, what's that level up? I think if the practitioners had that chance to explore when things haven't worked with the child and the parent, it gives them permission to then do that in the future together. So either having like some a conversation starter or a tool that they could use to unpack what worked, what didn't work and how we change it. If the practitioner is around, of course, there's that chance to go back and reevaluate. But if you're trying to empower the family to be able to do this in the future by themselves, I think having some sort of tool or reminder, something that's there that they can go back to can be really helpful. So I think if they can find different ways to reinforce so it could be role-playing. I think role-playing is, you know, not everyone wants to role-play, but if, you know, I, that's something that I like doing. You know, some kids will hate it, but some kids would love it. Um, even just having costumes and things, you know, make it into a really fun thing um, and make a whole and, you know, brought in. Doing that mind mapping and then, you know, maybe even uh, putting that into a poster and printing it out so that that can be put on a wall at home. Um, make it into little palm cards, you know, so that you can have stuck up. I think um, by making things fun and creative, you're learning in a different way. Angela Coppy talks about how creating tangible reminders for children are an important aspect of her practice. Making things visual. So I always write down what we have done in session. So I'll be writing notes. So I don't necessarily have worksheets or things like that that I give out. I always just have a stack of paper and texters and we will just create our own resources as we go. So I'll draw pictures and I'm not an artist. So it's very rudimentary stick figures usually, which puts the kids at ease. I think that there's no pressure for us, yeah, to be doing high-end art. Uh, so I'll just get the craft out um, and then share with them what is available and perhaps we can break brainstorm some ideas of whatever it is. Usually I introduce something verbally and then whatever it is that we're talking about, how can we conceptualise this in craft or in art? So I might give them some ideas around making a bracelet. So I've got some beads and uh, with lettering. So we might make a bracelet that has a catchphrase to help you remember what it is that we've discussed. Or we could create a poster or it could um, be something, like I said, on Canva, so an online version of that. So just really getting out different things and 
seeing what the child gravitates towards and helping them if they need to. I think it gives them something tangible that they can take away at the end of the therapy session and feel accomplished that I've actually learnt something and then it's something visual that they can draw back upon to remind them of some of the things that we have have spoken about. And I find that when kids are doing something, they're more likely to engage verbally because the pressure is taken off and families will typically put things up on walls or, you know, magnet to the fridge or some families will then create a folder so there's something that they can return to because uh, quite often we will return to things that we have done. So I think that's also important, that recency of, of practice that we know for things to go into the long-term memory, we need repetition. So coming back to things that we have done a few sessions ago just to review and to see if we need to go over any of those strategies again. I think because problems do return and so then we can come back to those strategies and you know I can have those conversations and say we've been here we've done this before let's go back and then because whatever the notes are that I have given the kids get scanned into our filing system so then I'll go back and I'll pull it up on the computer and say this is the conversation do you remember and we'll go through those notes and then make make another visual for them to take away to remind them of we've done it before we can do it again. I'll ask permission and say, is that okay if I share that? Sometimes when the kids make really great posters using Canva or they might have a really good catchphrase, I'll say, actually, can I keep a copy of that and we'll keep it up and we'll display it. Yeah, so I always will do that with their permission. But I think kids like to know that they're, they've been helpful in some way. Yeah, it makes them feel good. Well, that brings us to the end of this podcast. Thanks for listening, everyone. We hope you've enjoyed it and found it interesting and valuable. Please listen to the first of this two-part series if you haven't already. And thank you once again to our guests, Emerging Minds family partners, Emmy and Jess. Thanks for sharing your ideas and uh, insights from your lived experience. And thanks also to Angela Coppy, Jane Walsh and Sarah McLean for your generosity in sharing your practice reflections from your work with children and families. Thank you, everyone. Visit our website at www.emergingminds.com.au to access a range of resources to assist your practice. Brought to you by the National Workforce Centre for Child Mental Health, led by Emerging Minds, the National Workforce Centre for Child Mental Health is funded by the Australian Government Department of Health under the National Support for Child and Youth Mental Health Programme.